are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. I'm speaking to you from Europe. We're up in Scandinavia. We just flew into Sweden this afternoon. And we're really pleased to be able to be here. I'm here for a conference that I'm going to visit next week. But of course, we're here to spend time with uh, our family, my wife's family, um, our dear mother and father-in-law, and my um, brother-in-law and his family. We're really looking forward to this time where we can be together here with them. And again, be a part of a conference with uh, a bunch of Calvary Chapel people from throughout Scandinavia. So we look forward to that conference every year, and it's really wonderful to be able to do the Q&A here from uh, my dear mother and father-in-law's home. So I'm on their sort of back terrace or uh, deck, and uh, I'm waving hello to them off into the other room, and uh, you can see behind me are some nice uh, foliage and such like that. And so we're really enjoying our time here. We just got in here this afternoon. I think they may come over and just say hi for a moment. Here's my mother-in-law, Gunnel. Say hi to everybody. Hi, everybody. Hey, and do you watch the Q&A every week? Every week. <laughs> it's at 9 o'clock in Sweden, 9 right. p.m. Yes. Now, yeah. at 9 p.m. in California, it's dark, but look, it's still yeah, light here. It's yes. right. Well. Yeah. Long summer days and short winter days here in Scandinavia. And here's my father-in-law, Nils. Say hey. Yeah, hi to everybody. Hello. Hello, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> it's great. Yes. 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 That's a nice view you've got here. Is, isn't that nice background y- yes, behind me? It sure is. Maybe I should just do it here every week. <laughs> yes. <laughs> why not? <laughs> that would be great. And then, of course, uh, my okay, wife my wants to say hello to everybody. Hi, everybody. Yeah, we're a little bit tired, but you slept, yes. slept some on the airplane, so that's good. I'm going to... Um, unpack and uh, wait till you're finished. Yeah, and we're gonna go. We back. are we are a little jet lagged, aren't we? <laughs> Just a little loopy. So I'm I'm praying that I not, can. Not yes. You're not so much as I am, but yeah, so, I got anyway, a little bit of sleep on the everybody. way over here. Good. Great. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Well, um, that's some of my family over here. I wish I could introduce you to my brother and sister-in-law and his kids and all the rest of it. But again, we're just really pleased to be here. Okay. As is our pattern on a. Thursday afternoon or evening here in Sweden, we do a lead question. And the lead question will come in by email, social media. So this is a question that comes in from Teresa over Facebook. Um, and, and here's the, the question that comes in here. Uh, basically, the question is, is it a sin to be deceived? Okay, here's the question. Is it a sin on our part if or when one is deceived, as was Eve in Genesis 3 and mentioned in Genesis 3 verse 13, Adam, Eve, and all that lives on the earth was cursed from that moment on. Thanks and God bless. Well, Teresa, I think that's a great question. Is it a sin to be deceived? Because we all recognize it is sort of a different kind of of a matter when someone is deceived and sins or if somebody deliberately sins with full knowledge. 
And there is sort of a biblical analysis given to us of the sin of Adam and Eve later on in the New Testament that's helpful for us to examine here. And this is the examination. It says, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman, being deceived, fell into transgression. So we see here that Paul, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, makes a distinction between the nature of Eve's sin and the nature of Adam's sin. Now, take care. Again, writing by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul clearly tells us that what Eve did was sin. He calls it transgression. For Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Transgression is a word that simply means just to cross the line, to go over a boundary or a marker that God has established. And clearly, Eve did that, but she did that on the basis of deception. Uh, As is recorded in Genesis chapter 3, the serpent deceived her. We can question where Adam was at that particular moment, if he should have been doing something, if he shouldn't have been doing something, but we can question that if we want to. But the bottom line is that Eve was deceived by the servant and then she fell into transgression, which is another way of saying that she sinned. I find it fascinating that the Bible uses such a broad vocabulary to speak of sin. Um, it speaks of it in all sorts of trespass, transgression, um, wickedness, evil. I mean, I could go on and on, but there's many diff- there is a rich vocabulary to describe sin and evil and wickedness in the Bible. So Eve definitely sinned, but she did it on the basis of deception. Now, I find it very interesting that the Bible never blames Eve for the fall of the human race. Especially this is found in Paul's writing in Genesis, not Genesis, in Romans, Romans chapters five and six, where he makes it very plain Adam is responsible for the fall. You you could say that chronologically Eve sinned before Adam, but there was something different about Adam's sin that made him more guilty. And in fact, guilty before God of the fall of the entire human race. And the difference in Adam's sin was that he sinned with knowledge. He sinned with full knowledge of what was going on. Now, this shows us that being deceived is a sin, but it's not the same sin as to sin clearly knowing what is right and what is wrong and then choosing uh, the wrong. Now, the Old Testament uses a phrase that I find very interesting. I'm going to read you a passage from uh, Numbers chapter 15. Uh, It uses the phrase to sin with a high hand. Matter of fact, I need to check that just for a moment and make sure. Yeah, Numbers chapter 15. I was confused just for a moment whether it was Numbers or Leviticus. Numbers chapter 15, verses 30 and 31 say this. But the person who does anything presumptuously, whether he is native born or a stranger, that one brings reproach to the Lord and he shall be cut off from among his people because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment, that person shall be completely cut off. 
his guilt shall be upon him. Now, one should notice what, uh, again, Moses, inspired by the Holy Spirit, says, is that it is a much worse sin to sin, as is the phrasing here in Numbers chapter 15, verse 30, to sin presumptuously. Literally, in the Hebrew, that is to sin with a high hand. I can't tell you exactly where that metaphor comes from, but we recognize it instantly. It's to sin arrogantly. It's to sin knowingly. It's to sin in the face of God, uh, knowing what his command is, yet not caring about his command at all. That speaks of a flagrant rebellion against God, against the law of Moses, and against the nation as a whole. And the penalty there in Numbers chapter 15, verses 30 and 31, verse 31, it says, that person shall be completely cut off, his guilt shall be upon him. That kind of sin, presumptuous sin, sin with a high hand, was not to be tolerated in Israel. And I think it's very interesting is how that mechanism would work in ancient Israel. This would be a way for... Um, to make sure that arrogant flaunting of public morality would not be rewarded. Uh, That if somebody just just with great forwardness and arrogance wanted to shock the public with some greatly sinful act, that would be punished directly. Now, again, I, I think this is a great contrast to our modern culture where oftentimes notorious and flagrant sinners are rewarded They're rewarded sometimes with fame and fortune. In ancient Israel, it was not to be that way. Instead, God says, his guilt shall be upon him. Now, this means that to sin with knowledge, to sin presumptuously with a high hand is to do what verses 30 and 31 speaks. 31 31 says, because he has despised the word of the Lord. That's a worse sin. Look, sometimes we, and preachers, we're guilty of it from time to time. Sometimes we say all sin is the same. Or we say all sin is sin. Now that's true in the sense that all sin makes us guilty before God. All sin makes us sinners in need of a savior. But there is another very real sense in which we should not and we cannot say that all sin is the same. Um, Listen, um, uh, failing to completely stop at a stop sign, breaking a traffic law, a relatively minor traffic law, that may be a sin, but to say that it's the same as murdering 10 people, that's just moral foolishness. Now, they're both sins and they both place a person in need of a savior but they're not equal in God's sight, not at all. Some sins are worse than others, and to sin with full knowledge is worse than to sin under deception of some kind. I would even say this, and let me go a little bit further. I would say that it is a sin to be deceived in some sense. Why? Well, because the Bible tells us, and you find this especially pointed in Romans chapter 1, but it's sprinkled throughout the Bible in other places as well, 
God has revealed himself to everyone in creation and conscience. There is no one left without a revelation of God. People may reject that revelation. I see it all the time. I see all the time people sort of proudly boast and say, well, God could make himself knowable by me. God could reveal himself to me at any time. They're, They're ignoring the fact that God has revealed himself to mankind in both creation and conscience. But God has also revealed himself through his word. Now, God's revelation in creation and conscience reaches every human being who's ever existed. Not every human being that's ever existed, of course, to say it lightly, has been exposed to the word of God, to the Bible, to the revelation of God. But yet, it's readily available in the world today. Let's just speak in the modern world. Almost everyone, certainly I don't mean that exhaustively, but many, many people have an opportunity to read the Word of God, to understand the Word of God, yet they choose not to. And again, I would say that in some sense, that makes them guilty before God. They may be deceived because they're not listening to God's revelation through creation and conscience. They may be deceived because they're not listening to what God has revealed in his word, but that's on them. It's not on God. So just sort of summarize, Teresa, I would put it this way. It is a sin to be deceived. When God has made his revelation available, through creation, through conscience, and through his word, then to choose ignorance is a sin. Now, it certainly may be, and in many cases is, a lesser sin. We don't want to say that it's the same thing to sin through deception and to sin through uh, uh, knowing exactly what one should do and failing to do it. Well, we're not trying to say they're the same sins, but they are both sins, to sin either um, presumptuously or to sin from deception. Uh, All in all, I think this um, brings us back to the importance of knowing, understanding, and cherishing the word of God, which is really something that I've given my life's work to. Um, If we've never been introduced before I have a written commentary on the entire Bible that at least some people find helpful. And um, if it's helpful for you, I'm delighted. It's available absolutely free, free of charge on our website, EnduringWord.com, in translated works through our subdomains, many different languages, Arabic, Chinese, Spanish, German, Russian, in the subdomains. Uh, But it's also available in an amazing app for your iPhone or your Android device. Man, we're thrilled about the improvements that have been made to the app recently. Wow, it's just, it's really thrilling for us to see the app progressing in such a great, wonderful way. So it's important for us to know what God says in his word. That's one reason why my life's work, as far as a ministry vocation is, is just trying to make the Bible as clear as possible and as helpful as possible to people. Now, before I begin going to the questions that have come in on the live chat, they are being texted to me by our moderator, Devin. Uh, Devin is in 
the west coast of California, much south of where I live. But um, Devin is in California. He receives those questions that you leave in the comment section on the YouTube uh, channel. And then Devin, uh, he selects the questions that he think will have an appeal to the widest audience. Huh. I, I don't tell Devin, hey, no questions like this or no questions like, look, it's, it's up to him. But we do tell him, hey, uh, select the questions, give priority to the questions that have to do, number one, with the lead question, and number two, that might have an appeal to the broadest possible audience. So I'm going to look that over. But again, today, I'm not in California. I'm not on the West Coast of the United States at my home, in my office, with my books behind me. Um, no, well, where I'm at now is in Sweden. So I want to give a special greeting to all of our European viewers and all of our viewers outside the U.S. Um, look, sometimes it's easy for uh, Christians wherever we live. If we live in Europe, if we live in Africa, if we live in Australia, if we live in South America, if we live in North America, it's very easy for us to get very focused on what our Christian experience is and to forget that there is a marvelous broad body of Christ that extends all around the world. And I try not to forget that. And that's one of the reasons why I am super, super grateful for our international audience. So today I'm joining you from outside the U.S. I'm here on the west coast of Sweden uh, and very delighted to be with my wife's family as we spend a few days here and prepare for a conference that we're going to take part in next week. Okay, enough with that. Let me go to the questions that have come in here on the live chat. First, a question from Audra. Audra asks, will we be participating in the millennial kingdom or is that only for those who are alive at the time? Okay, Audra, you're asking a question about end times, what more formally we might call eschatology. Don't let a big word like that throw anybody off. It just means the study of the end times as the scriptures might reveal them to us. And again, I always want to give the caveat when I'm talking about things having to do with the end times or last days, that there is quite a broad difference of opinion among Christians regarding things in the last days. And matter of fact, there have been differing opinions, even from the days of the early church. Right now, I'm teaching a class on church history uh, for a African uh, school of missions. And in some of the research I've been doing and preparing for the classes, I was so interested to find out that um, even in the early church, they recognized that Christians believed different things when it came to eschatology. And they understood that and tolerated that and just kind of said, well, we'll disagree, but get along. And I think that's important for us to do. But Audrey, you're asking me from my perspective, so I'm happy to give you um, an answer from how I understand eschatology while acknowledging that other brothers and sisters who love the Lord and take the Bible seriously uh, may believe differently. With my tongue just a little bit in my cheek, I'll say, I, I'm fine with them being wrong on this. I'll, I'll be the right one and just tell you, Audra, I believe that we as believers will participate in the millennial kingdom, but not as so-called citizens of the earth. We will rather be part of the governing authority 
that Jesus Christ has to administrate the millennial earth and that we will be rewarded for our faithful and diligent service unto the Lord in this life with greater responsibility as we help Jesus govern the millennial kingdom to come. So your question is, will we participate in the millennial kingdom? And I think that that is a very hard and firm answer. Yes, we will participate. Um, But we will help govern an earth that is made up of, uh, populated by, maybe I should say, number one, those who have survived the Great Tribulation, the Battle of Armageddon, which will be a substantially lower percentage of the earth, maybe maybe a third of the earth's population will perish in those that terrible season of the Great Tribulation and the Battle of Armageddon. And then not only those who survive the Great Tribulation, but also those who uh, are deemed worthy by Jesus in the judgment of the sheep and the goats. When I see the judgment of the sheep and the goats in Matthew chapter 25, I don't regard it as being a judgment between heaven and hell. I regard it being a judgment of those who remain on the earth after the Great Tribulation, after the Battle of Armageddon. It is a judgment to see who will be allowed to continue on in the millennial earth and who will go face their eternal destiny immediately. So yes, we will participate but more as a governing help to Jesus in our resurrection bodies. I believe that'll be the role of present-day believers uh, in the millennial kingdom. Hope that's helpful for you there. Pastor Miles, hey, Pastor Miles, if you're still watching, greetings to you, brother. Miles is part of our Enduring Word board, and a couple years ago, he and his wife, Andrea, came with us to be a part of this Scandinavia conference that we're going to attend uh, next week. And man, it would be great to do that again together sometime. We're doing it this year, just my wife and I, and then some other pastors that they're bringing in from different places in Europe. Uh, but anyway, he's asking, will Nils's book on be on Kindle someday? Uh, Miles, I, I can do that. Um, it's a project that hasn't been on the front of my mind but I think I can figure out how to do that. So let me get it to you some work. What Miles is speaking about is that my father-in-law, Nils Bergstrom, has a wonderful and powerful book on fasting. It's titled this, Dedication Through Fasting and Prayer. I think I can ask Devin, our moderator, to throw that link up in the comments, and maybe we can add it a little bit later on in the details for this video. But the book is titled Dedication Through Fasting and Prayer, and you can get it in print from Amazon. Just make the order and it'll be shipped to you. But we really should, Miles, get that in a Kindle version. And uh, I'm going to put that on my list of things to do. And I don't know, maybe I'll be able to work on that a little bit here. I I don't know, (laughs) but we'll look into it. So thanks for that suggestion, Miles. And uh, greetings to you. I know my mother and father-in-law, Nils and Gunnar, would love to give a greeting to you. Okay, let me go on to the next question from Jennifer. Jennifer asked this question. Is there any possibility the place where the Israelite crossed the Jordan going into the promised land could be the same place where Christ was baptized? Um, Oh, 
my super helpful wife, before I get to uh, Jennifer's question, she just dashed in here. She didn't want to come back on camera. She brought to me helpfully a copy of my father-in-law's book. Here it is, Dedication Through Fasting and Prayer. And I'm not exactly sure if it's appearing in mere image on the uh, uh, my phone. It may very well be. But if it is, you just get an idea of what the cover is like. Here's the book, Dedication Through Fasting and Prayer. You can get it through Amazon. It's a great book, and we hope to put it in a Kindle version. Um, okay, now, Jennifer's question, is there any possibility that where the Israelites crossed the Jordan going into the promised land could be the same place where Christ was baptized? Jennifer, all I can give you is a top-of-my-head answer to that. And off the top of my head, I could say yes. Now, I'm not completely familiar with the geography of the different traditional sites for Jesus to be baptized. I know that there's a couple different places where people claim, and there's one in particular that's accessible from uh, the kingdom of Jordan, uh, having to do with a, a place where they believe people were, believe where John the Baptist did his baptizing ministry and therefore where Jesus would have been baptized. And I do know this, that it's not far from the area near Jericho. So uh, Jennifer, I think without, again, speaking off the top of my head and without having a map or geography in front, I, I could give you a pretty firm yes, it could be. You know, whether it was or not, we can't say with certainty, but it certainly could be the same place. Again, the same place where Jesus was baptized being perhaps the same place where Joshua and the children of Israel miraculously came over uh, the Jordan River. I see that Devin just put up the link to the book on fasting and prayer that my father-in-law has written. So again, I recommend that book to you. Let me go to the next question from Barry. Barry asks this question. Since Christ is deity, how is it that he needed to grow in spirit and wisdom during his childhood? And then he's referencing a few passages in Luke. Here's Luke chapter 2, verse 40, where it says, And the child grew and became strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. That's Luke chapter 2, verse 40. Speaking of Jesus growing in spirit, being filled with wisdom. And then Luke chapter 2 verse 52 says, And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. B Barry's question is, listen, if Jesus is God, how could this be? Well, it, it's just simply to, to answer and say that yes, Jesus was and is God. We certainly know that to be true. But he was also human. This is one of the mysteries of the incarnation. We have a combination of the human and the divine in Jesus Christ. And in the divine nature of Jesus, well, God is God. God can't improve. God can't change. God can't grow. Yet there were places where Jesus submitted to his human nature. And in his human nature, he could grow. He could learn. He could increase in wisdom. He could increase in the spirit. So really, Barry, kind of the, the quick and easy, I, I, I'll be honest, I don't know if it's a completely satisfactory answer to you, 
but that this is just referencing to what Jesus could do in his human nature. And of course, it's true about Jesus because his human nature was a true part of his being. It just wasn't the only part of his being. There is an ancient heresy, and I I mentioned before this class on church history that I'm teaching. And there's an ancient heresy, several ancient heresies regarding the person of Jesus. And one of them uh, is basically the idea that the, uh, the... the deity of Jesus canceled out his human his humanity. So that Jesus didn't really have a human nature. It was just overwhelmed by his deity. And, and we don't believe that to be true. We, we believe that Jesus was truly human and truly God. Uh, sometimes we use the phrase, and this is maybe speaking a little bit sloppy, we say that Jesus was fully human and fully God. But it's kind of hard to explain how you can be fully two things, but you can certainly be, maybe it's easier to understand how you can be truly human and truly God. And that's the God-man, Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. So Barry, those references to Jesus growing in wisdom and such, they really come back to um, just what he grew in, in his human nature. Just one more quick thing for you to reflect on, and then I'll get on to some other questions. But We know for sure that Jesus became hungry. We know that Jesus became tired. Uh, We know that energy and effort went out from him. None of these things are true of God in his deity alone, but they are true of human beings. And so Jesus identified with us in our humanity and truly experienced these things that humanity has to experience. So thank you for that question there, Barry. Let me go on to the next question from Ice, Ice Coffee. Um, Thoughts on violent video games? Well, Ice, let me just say, I don't don't know if I think about them very much. Let me give you just some top-of-my-head thoughts. These aren't rehearsed. This is a spontaneous question, so I'll give you some spontaneous thoughts. First of all, I do think that there can be a legitimate distinction between violence that is clearly make-believe and violence that is real. Um, Violence that is clearly make-believe, I think, isn't nearly as harmful or damaging to a person than violence that is real. I keep coming back to this uh, church history class that I'm lecturing on and I suppose that we're going to start releasing some of those lectures on our YouTube channel uh, in coming weeks. But one of the things that I've been reminded of in going through this is how one thing that early Christians rejected pretty universally was they said Christians should not go to the gladiatorial games. There you were seeing real violence enacted right in front of you and to the death. I mean, we're not even talking about, you know, like a boxing or even a modern MMA match where people may be beaten up pretty bad, which, you know, there there may be people for conscience sake, they don't want to be involved in that. But, you know, gladiatorial games were to the death. And pretty universally, Christians said, nope, we're not going to be a part of that. That's just not for us. Now, I would put for the most part, and, and 
friends, please, I'm not a video game expert. I really can't give you a comprehensive survey of them. I mean, I know extremely popular with a generation that's predominantly younger than I am, and I don't despise that. That's that's a form of entertainment that's meaningful to them. Um, I would just make the distinction between what is clearly make-believe violence and what is true violence. And there may be a Christian who by conscience doesn't even want to be a part of things that are make-believe violence, but I, I don't think that it has the same moral obligation that we would have to uh, not support or champion or applaud uh, actual real violence uh, just for the sake of entertainment. So I, I guess that's the way that I, I don't know if that helps you there, iced coffee, but really that's, that's how I, I would put it. Um, next question comes from Bob. Bob asks, what does Paul mean by the word accursed in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 22? Is he being euphemistic? How is that loving? He says, uh, verse 22 of 1 Corinthians chapter 16, if anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. O Lord, come. Well, the word accursed, Bob, just simply means to have a curse placed upon you. And Paul here is casting forth the idea, the wish, the desire, that those who would reject Jesus Christ would find themselves to be accursed before God. That people who didn't want to be a part of what God wanted to do, God's great plan in this world, that they would bear the penalty of that rejection and be accursed of God. Listen, there is a sense in which everybody who rejects God is casting forth a curse against God. God, I don't love you. I don't respect you. I don't want to listen to you. I don't want you to have anything to do with telling me what to do or what is true. Now, if a person does that, um, I think God has every just reason to answer back with accursing them. I think it's a two-way thing. Look, there is no one who loves Jesus who submits to the will of Jesus to the best of their imperfect ability, who seeks to honor Jesus and promote his kingdom, that person will never be accursed. But the person who, in effect, curses God, they will find themselves accursed. And I really think that that happens without apology before the Lord. This is what the Lord does in these circumstances. So there's nothing exaggerated. There's nothing euphemistic about it, I think. Um, and your, your question there, how is that loving? It, it's loving just in the sense that it's, it's loving to be real about the penalty that people court, that people invite themselves, that people invite upon themselves if they reject God. 
Um, it's loving to that person to be real about that problem. Yeah. And so uh, this is the difficulty I think that we have in just saying that uh, this is um, not loving or is loving uh, depend just on the thing of whether or not it is nice or helpful to a person. That threat of a curse can be a very legitimate warning that ends up being very helpful to a person. Okay, next question comes from Paola. Paola um, asks this question, how close should our relationship be when ministering to non-believers who are involved in witchcraft, especially when they are family? Well, Paola, I, I think that we should be cautious of anyone who's involved in witchcraft, not, not because we need to be filled with fear or apprehension. Hey, I, I really believe what the Bible says. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. The power that fills us by the power of the Holy Spirit is much greater than any powers of darkness that are afoot. Now, it's not the problem with the power of God. It's the power with our ability to trust God, to have confidence in him. Uh, the practice of witchcraft may cause undue fear and doubt and apprehension within a person. And if a person is not fully prepared to really trust God, in the midst of that kind of attack having to do with, with the presence of witchcraft or other occultic practices, then, then they need to keep some distance from it. I guess what I'm trying to say, Paola, is that there's no universal answer to that question um, other than just to say you, 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 need to be, um, you need to be accurate and true about your own level of spiritual maturity and faith in dealing with such attacks. Um, so I, I guess th there's some caution that's deserved, but certainly I believe that there are more than just a few believers that can be confident in going against such things and really not need to have much apprehension at all. Other Christians who are maybe young in the faith or weak in the faith, uh, they need to display a greater caution. Okay, let me go on to the next question from Junebug. Junebug asks this, um, Jesus as God is the uncreated one, but in some way was Jesus as flesh and blood created? Even though he was conceived through the Holy Spirit, he still has human genetics. Junebug, the best way that I can explain the phenomenon of the incarnation, because really that's what you're asking about. You know, how, how did this happen? Wasn't Jesus created in some way? I, I go back to what I believe is Psalm 40. I may not have the exact Psalm in mind properly, but it's this great section in the Psalms where speaking messianically, speaking in the voice of Jesus the Messiah, uh, David, the psalmist, I believe it's David, maybe it's one of the other psalm writers, says, again, in the voice of Jesus, a body you have prepared for me. 
See, what happened in the incarnation is that God the Son, the second person of the Trinity who has existed from eternity in the past, has no beginning, has no end. God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, did at a specific point in time add humanity to his deity. And as he added humanity to his deity, that was something new. The incarnation was something new. There was a body prepared for Jesus, obviously, in that act of conception, miraculously in the womb of Mary, because Jesus was conceived by a miracle, not not by any normal way of conception that the entire rest of the human race, with the exception of Adam and Eve, have known. And so that flesh and blood nature was added to his humanity, excuse me, added to his deity. So we, we don't think of the incarnation as subtraction, as if Jesus in his deity took anything away from himself. No, the incarnation needs to be seen as addition. God the Son added humanity to his deity. Okay, let me continue on with a question from, oh boy, a little bit hard to pronounce here. Tolo Tranirina. Tolo Tranirina. Please forgive me if I'm mispronouncing your name. Ask this question. Can mentally ill people be saved? Well, Tolo Tranirina. Let me just say, yes, absolutely. Um, God, I believe, has a principle of accountability. I don't know if I'm entirely comfortable using the phrase an age of accountability. Because, again, who knows where a person is at age-wise. But in principle, there is a principle of accountability. And the principle of accountability just simply says this, is that some people are more accountable before God than others. This kind of gets back to our lead question today, having to do with, is it a sin to be deceived? Yes, it is, but it's not as bad as a sin as it is to have full knowledge into sin. Some people are more accountable than others. And surely if a person has diminished mental and cognitive capability, uh, ability to learn, ability to understand, ability to exercise their will. If a person has that diminished in some way, then surely God takes that into account when he holds them accountable. And I think that that principle is directly relevant to those people who we might describe as special needs. We might call them mentally ill, whatever it would be, whatever is on that spectrum. And so, yes, definitely. Mentally ill people can not only be saved, they can have a real relationship with Jesus Christ. Special needs people can not only be saved, they can have a real relationship with Jesus Christ. Jesus's love and care certainly extends to those that he called the least of these. And it doesn't mean that they're least in God's kingdom. It means that they're often least or little in the estimation of mankind. So I hope that's helpful for you there. Tolo trinane rirna. And again, 
Sorry for being so difficult with your name there. Next question comes from NG, who asks this. Is the current political climate happening in the U.S. the apostasy spoken of in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, a seared conscience? Let's read that passage. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, where it says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, to speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. Um, NG, I would say that the current cultural, societal, political climate Uh, that I see in the Western world, maybe predominantly with the U.S., it's certainly leading to this place. I I don't want to sound really negative, but things could get substantially worse. And in some ways, they have been worse in what we might call pre-Christian times in the West and in Europe and other places in the world. Uh, We're a little bit shocked when we see many aspects of Christian morality being so openly challenged and rejected in our present world today. But we should remind ourselves that there was a time when those things were not taken for granted at all. Not at all. Look, I I, I don't want to be crude or crass, but there was a time, especially in the Roman Empire, but not restricted to the Roman Empire, when pedophilia... um, immoral relations with young children was just accepted. It was just considered to be normal. And it's only through the Christianization of society and culture that people have come to an understanding that that's evil. That should not, that must not be done. Okay, well, that being true, as society begins to reject more and more Christian values, godly values, just values given to us by God's word, his revelation. We can expect more and more of those pre-Christian things of morality to come back. So I don't know, NG, if I would specifically say that what we see now is a fulfillment of it, but I would say it's certainly leading to a fulfillment of it. Um, I don't want to sound very negative, but I will sound negative, just what I'm saying right now it could get substantially worse. We're we're not near the bottom yet. Continuing on with another question from Men of the Bible, asks this question, what are your views on the effectiveness of altar calls? Men of the Bible, I think that's a great question. Uh, I believe, I believe that it is entirely appropriate for a preacher or an evangelist to call people to decision. That is something you see as a characteristic of New Testament preaching. I could give you several examples in the Gospels or the book of Acts, but the the idea of calling people to decision regarding Jesus Christ, that's an entirely biblical concept. Now, 
how one calls them to decision and what custom or mechanism or whatever it is you said, that, that I think can and should be regarded as fairly adaptable. Just what, what is most honoring to God, what, what will connect with people the best way? I think these are the questions to ask. So the altar call where people are invited to declare a decision, declare their faith in Jesus Christ by coming forward or sometimes raising a hand or sometimes standing where they're sitting or whatever particular mechanism. I don't think the mechanism itself is as important as it is to make a call to decision in a clear, in a non-manipulative way uh, and to do it in a way that doesn't imply, and here I'm going to touch on one of the weaknesses of altar calls. People can think that walking down an aisle and coming to the front of a you know, room or before a platform, that that is what saves them, so to speak. And I think that's wrong thinking and sometimes dangerous thinking. No, it's that person's exercise of faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The person and work of Jesus Christ is what saves them. They simply receive it by the faith that God even helps give to them in that moment. So, it's not the act of walking down an aisle or raising a hand or throwing a pine cone into the fire that actually does the work of saving. We, we need to be clear on that. But it can be a demonstration of a heart of a life that genuinely does receive what God is offering to humanity in Jesus Christ. I think that of the criticisms I have heard of um, the altar call, some of the criticisms are justified. But the basic principle of calling people to decision in preaching, that is entirely appropriate to do. Hope that helps you there, men of the Bible. Next question comes from uh, Kofowurola. Again, I, I hope I'm pronouncing your name correctly. Uh, says this, um, should a pastor be equated with a king in the church? Should their children be given special privileges because of their position? Um, Kofowurola, I, I would simply put it this way. Um, no, a pastor should not be equated with a king in the church. Uh, I, I think that's pretty plain that that's wrong. Uh, pastors are not kings. Um, they're to be rulers that are different than the Gentiles, not just like them in every way. So no, a, a pastor should not be like a king. A pastor should be like a servant. There's really a wonderful passage, what is it, in 1 Samuel chapter 5, where Samuel warns the people of Israel before they embrace their king. And he warns them saying, um, if you take a king, you need to understand he's going to take this from you, and he's going to take that from you, he's going to take. Kings basically take. Jesus Christ came to give. So there should be a contrast between the way 
that earthly rulers rule and the way that the church of Jesus Christ is governed. Now, you ask the question, should their children be given special privileges because of their position? All right, I'm going to give a biased answer to that question. I'll admit right up front that it's a biased answer to the question, but you ask me, and so I'm going to answer. I, I think that it's okay for a pastor's kids to have some privileges. Look, pastor's kids pay a price. It's not easy having a dad and or mom in ministry. And so I think that there's some sense of recompense that is appropriate, but obviously this can be taken too far. Obviously, this is something that could be far beyond what is appropriate for somebody under certain circumstances. So again, I I think we can say, yes, I don't mind pastor's kids having some privileges as long as it's not excessive. And the privileges would just be thought of as things that are at least some compensation for the sacrifices that the children may have to bear in honoring their father uh, and or mother in the work that they do for the kingdom. A couple more questions, and then we're going to conclude this for the day. Next question comes from Popol. Popol asks this question. In Revelation chapters 1 through 3, is this a warning to the last day saints? Get right or stay here? Or is it like in Matthew chapter 25 with the virgins, I don't know you? Or like the parable of the wheat and the tares, can you give some insight? Well, Popol, if your question is mainly around the idea that is what Jesus said to the churches, especially in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, is that a warning to the church? And I would say absolutely it's a warning to the church. I'll just put it to you this way. To my remembrance, Jesus told five of the seven churches that he wrote to in the book of Revelation, he told five of the seven to repent. In other words, there were five of the seven churches that Jesus dictated letters to in Revelation chapter two and three that were in serious need of some repentance. And so Jesus counseled them to do exactly that. If you want to say that that's get right or stay here, well, that's that's warning enough, I think, for anybody. So I don't think that so much that Jesus is casting these people off, although I will say this, he did make a threat to one of the churches that he would remove their lampstand from his place. And that is a very chilling warning that Jesus gave to that particular church. But for the most part, it really is a matter of uh, honoring God through right living um, in that sense. So I hope that helps you there, Popol. And then finally, our question from Zermeraldo. Are Jehovah's Witnesses damned if they don't understand the Trinity? Zimeraldo, I think that's a great question. And let me just say, it, just the way that you asked the question, are Jehovah's Witnesses damned if they don't understand the Trinity? No. Not understanding the Trinity is not what damns somebody. 
because I don't know if anybody understands the Trinity in any significant depth. It is a mystery, is it not? And so uh, you don't need a full or complete understanding of the Trinity to be saved, but here's the difficulty, and here's the difficulty for Jehovah's Witnesses, those who follow the teachings of the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society. Their difficulty is this. You can't reject the biblical Jesus and be saved. And this is the error that Jehovah's Witnesses fall into. It's not because there's some technical aspect of the Trinity that they don't understand or don't agree with. It's that Jehovah's Witnesses, the official doctrine of the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society, which Jehovah's Witnesses are commanded to believe without any variation, that presents to the Jehovah's Witnesses and to the world a Jesus that does not match up with the Jesus of the Bible. Not at all. And so I think we need to take care of that. Um, So it's not a matter of not understanding every nuance of theology, especially the Trinity. But it is an issue of, I, I like to use this phrase, bringing the real me to the real Jesus. If we do that, if we bring the real us to the real Jesus, we're going to be okay. Well, everybody, I hope that's helpful for you. As you can see, it's getting a little bit darker here on the west coast of Sweden. It's almost 10 o'clock in the evening here. Hour 22 coming up on us very shortly. Wherever you are in the world, I'm very pleased that you could join us. As always, I want to give a special greeting to our TWR360 audience, our Trans World Radio audience. We love it when you can join us. And I hope that you can join me next week. Now, God willing, and if I live, I will be doing the live Q&A from the Scandinavia Conference. That's the hope. That's the, I, if technically we can do it, we'll do it. That's the plan for next Thursday. So pleased that you could join us. God bless you, everybody. Thank you for your wonderful questions and your participation. I'm so pleased that you can be a part of our YouTube audience with this video. God bless you and hope that you can join us. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.